0: John 1 starting at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess but confessed freely I am not the Messiah. They asked him then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered no. Finally they said who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with the two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Peter, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John, what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word.
1: Evening everybody, my name's Phil, I'm Associate Minister here. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that... As we look at words written by John, we would hear your voice addressing us. For we would see the Lord Jesus. We long to hear his voice and we pray that it would be him that we learn from tonight. Amen. Amen. We live in a time when God seems quite silent. At a macro level, there are wars. There is huge political instability. There are volcanoes going off. At a local level, there are stabbings, moped gangs, Brexit's meaning that there is genuine uncertainty amongst a number here about the future of their jobs. And where is God in all of that? Those of us here who are Christians, we, we want to talk to our friends, our colleagues, our families about Jesus Christ. But quite often, the response we get is questions that we find it very hard to answer. You want to tell me about Jesus? Well, where's your God in this world? He has nothing to say to everything that's going on. Why should I listen to your God? Why should I care what he has to say? Well, be encouraged because John 1 is going to teach us that God is not silent. And God has come to us. He does care. And as we bring friends to hear about Jesus, as we bring friends to come to find out about Jesus, we bring them to the one who has the answers to the questions they're asking. The one who really can address the issues of the world. Uh, Let's look through the passage, just two points for you. Firstly, John pointed away from himself to Jesus. Now, the Old Testament is full of promises. It's basically kind of like a really long engagement. It's half-fulfilled promises. That's the story of the Old Testament, a big engagement. There's, there's a relationship, but it's, it's not quite what was promised. Now, the longest engagement ever was Octavio Guilin and Adriana Martinez. They got engaged age 15 in 1902. It was 67 years before he finally agreed to walk her up the aisle. 67 years. That is quite something. Don't try it, I think. Uh, it's a bit like that in the Old Testament. You've got these amazing promises and you're kind of waiting. So, yeah, okay, God, when's it going to happen? And, yeah, good stuff happens and there's lots of excitement and, and God helps his people, but it's not quite what he promised. There's... You know, the promise at the beginning of the Bible that God is going to work to to undo the effects of sin that came into the world. In Genesis 3, humanity brought rebellion against God into the world and death and destruction have followed. And God promised uh, through the early chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, that he was going to work through one particular group of people, the Israelites. And they would be a sort of working model, a microcosm of how he was going to reverse the mess of the whole world. That's what he was going to do. And though lots of good stuff happens, none of it lives up to the hype. Now, when you compare the reality of Israel's experiences in the Old Testament to the promises of God, it's a bit like comparing the estate agent's photos with the flat you actually look around. Right? Ooh, uh, where's the sort of large, spacious living room that we saw on the photos? Ah, those photos are for illustration purposes only. So. Yeah, fisheye lens and all. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? There's just this gap between the reality and the expectation. But the truth is, Israel was never meant to be the final thing. Israel in the Bible was always just a working model. And so, Israel should never have been taken as the answer. Always just a, a signpost, a model, pointing to what God would do. And so as you read through the Old Testament, the hundreds and hundreds of years of history, the promises stack up and up and up. God keeps promising, keeps promising, keeps promising. And the people keep on looking forward to the day when God will finally do what he said. The day when God will finally reverse the death and destruction of this world. When God will finally bring us to life and freedom. Promises, promises, promises until one day... In 400 BC, God just stopped speaking. The prophet Malachi is the last, the final prophet in the Old Testament. And after him, 400 years of silence, no miracles, no voice, no promises. 400 years when God says nothing. Until now. Until a man appears in the desert outside Jerusalem, calling the people to repent, that is to turn back to God and to get baptized at a ceremony, expressing their longing that they would be washed clean by God. The man's another John, not the John who wrote this gospel, but John the Baptist. Although to be honest, his name really should be John the Signpost. Because as we'll see, he spends his entire time saying, stop looking at me, look at Jesus. His entire life is about pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, John led one of the greatest revivals in any religious history, whatever religion you're studying, one of the great revivals. We're told in the other Gospels that the entire population of the capital city traipsed out into the desert to hear him speak and to be washed by him in the Jordan River miles away. And so unsurprisingly, the, the religious elite, the establishment, want to know what this weird odd ball in the desert is talking about. So they send a delegation out to meet him. And that's where we dive in at verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer. Now, the Messiah or the Christ is the great figure of hope in the Old Testament, God's promised saviour king who will rescue his people. But John was clear, I'm not the Messiah. Oh, uh, well, What about Elijah? Now, Elijah the prophet didn't die in 850 BC. He was taken back up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And pretty much the final verse of the entire Old Testament in Malachi 4 states that before the Lord comes, Elijah would reappear. So are you Elijah? Nope, not him either. Now that denial causes us problems if we know the Bible well, because in Mark 9, 13 to 14, Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah. But they're basically making different points. Uh, Jesus is saying, John fulfills the, the role, the function, of a prophet in the mold of Elijah who must come before Jesus, the Lord. John the Baptist's point is, no, I'm not literally Elijah. And then finally, are you the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18.15? No. And you'll see if you look, the answers just get shorter and shorter as John goes. I'm not the Messiah. I am not. No. He's just. just, will you shut up? It's, he's just fed up. He's exasperated. Well, why? Well, the reason for that is pretty clear from 22 to 23. He does not want to talk about himself. Verse 22, finally they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. At last, a substantial response. And what he's doing is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's writing around 700 BC. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Now, the original context for this is that the, the people of Israel have sinned against God and they've been dragged away into exile in Babylon, the superpower of the day, which has trashed Jerusalem and dragged the people away as slaves. But God has promised through the prophet Isaiah, look, I will act to rescue my people, to bring them back from exile. I'll lead them across the wilderness. And I will come and do it. Now, this This happened. It happened 70-odd years later. But the promises in Isaiah, uh, they're just a whole lot bigger than just people traipsing back across the desert to a ruined capital city in Jerusalem. John understood that he was the herald Isaiah had spoken about who would promise the coming of a much greater leader, God himself, and who would bring about a much, much greater rescue a rescue from slavery to sin, and and an exile not from the the physical place Jerusalem, but the exile from God that all humanity knows. And a healing for the despair and the destruction and the death that we all suffer from. And that leads uh, John to make a very important distinction for you and for me as we read the Bible. The distinction between symbol and substance, or ritual and reality if you like says, yeah, yeah, okay, you want to know why I'm washing people if I don't have any official religious title. I've not been ordained by you. Big deal. So why am I doing this? Well, it's a symbol. It's a ritual. I kind of wash people uh, so that they are clean on the outside. And it's a sign that God is going to wash people inside to deal with the reality of sin. And God himself is coming to do that. And when he comes... The one whom God sends is going to be so magnificent, so mighty, so awesome, that I am just not worthy to to lick his flip-flops clean. Well, okay, well, what's this reality to to which the the ritual of baptism points? Well, we see two things in 29 to 31. What John is talking about is sin actually being taken away from us and God's Holy Spirit cleansing our hearts. 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We sang about it earlier. It's, a, it's an echo of something that happened a long, long time before. When the Israelites were a slave nation in Egypt, being worked to death, God brought them out. He rescued them. And the final act in that great drama was that he sent the angel of death on Egypt to punish the wickedness of their sin. But the thing with God is God doesn't have favourites. He's just. He doesn't show favoritism. And so if he's going to punish the Egyptians for their sin, he's got to punish the Israelites as well. But the way God rescues his children is that he provides a lamb for each family. And the family kills the lamb and symbolically the lamb dies in the place of them. So God's punishment to death is able to pass over the Israelites. And John says, look, in Jesus, you see the reality behind that ritual. The true lamb who's able to take the sins of the whole world because, well, as John said in verse 23, he is the Lord. God himself, a lamb can, can only take the place of a, of a family, of one child, but Jesus, the true lamb, he is God himself in human flesh. He can take the, the sins of the whole world. Now, John could call the people to turn back to God, but he couldn't deal with sin. Jesus, however, will come and die on a cross. And in his death, he absorbs the punishment for every single sin committed by every single person who ever puts their trust in Jesus Christ. God and human flesh can do that. It's an amazing phrase, actually, when you dig into it a bit. The the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, you and I can forgive one another our sins. So if someone wrongs you here tonight, you can forgive them. You have that power. But to take sin away, you can't take it away completely. You know, when you're a kid, you break something precious to your mum in the house, a vase. You know, oh no, you smashed it. Well, your parents can forgive you. They can do that. But even if dad glues the vase back together, even if mum pieces the pieces together very carefully, there'll always be the ugly lines all over it. You can forgive, but the consequences will always be there. And it's like that in our relationships. We know that. If a wife commits adultery against her husband, if a husband, if a friend shares some really ugly gossip about another friend that they just couldn't keep in, well, you can forgive them. Restore the relationship. But there are consequences. The trust is damaged. You can't just take away the consequences. They're there. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That means because Jesus has died in your place, if you trust him, not only can you deal with God without guilt, you know, my sin has been punished. Technically, I should be forgiven God. No, it's much better than that. We can deal with God without shame, without awkwardness without embarrassment, because the sin has been completely removed. It's no longer there. The consequences are gone. And now we can be children. Now we can be free with God. It's a wonderful promise. But that's not all. Verses 32 to 34 give the other half of what Jesus will do. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom the Spirit comes down and remains is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified this is God's chosen one. It's what John had had told the religious leaders in verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. This is why he was not worthy to undo the straps of his sandals, because this one, Jesus, were baptised with the Holy Spirit. So John can baptise with water like a bath gets you clean on the outside as a picture that Jesus would baptise with the Spirit, a bath on the inside. Not just a new leaf, but a new heart. That's what Jesus promises by the Spirit. God's own Spirit breathing new desires into you, new loves and a new power enabling real inward change enabling us to obey God, to love God and to love other people in a way which is way beyond our own ability or power. That's why John says Jesus is so much better. He deals with the reality of sin and he can bring God's Holy Spirit's power to change your heart. Now, John deserves a place with any great religious leader. If you're listing great religious leaders, Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, John should be up there. He led one of the greatest revivals in all history. But he had no interest in gaining reputational followers for himself. Look at verses 19 and 34, and you see what John's all about. Verse 19, this was John's testimony. Verse 32 and verse 34, John gave this testimony, I've seen and I testify. John saw his whole life as about testifying about Jesus. Now, most of us, if we're honest, we go through life worried others will think too little of us. We hate it when people think we're worse than we are, stupider than we are, not as good, as capable, as competent as we are. John's great fear was people would think too much of him. The next time we meet him in John chapter 3, verse 30, as he finds that from his thousands of followers, people are just streaming away, turning to follow Jesus, leaving him. And his people say, what do you think of that, John? What do you think of Jesus? Will you give us a quote? Will you, will you uh, say something to try and convince people to stay with you? And John shakes his head. He says, no, he must become greater. I must become less. What an extraordinary man. But what made him like that is what he knew about Jesus. Jesus. There have been 400 years of silence up to this point. 400 years, if you like, of the stage being cleared. 400 years of preparation. So that there are no distracting voices, no other, uh, no other prophets being heard. God wants the stage silent and ready. Why? What can be so important that God would hush the world for 400 years? the arrival of his son, to take away your sin and to send you his Holy Spirit. John pointed away from himself to Jesus. And secondly, the disciples introduced others to him. John was the forerunner and understood, look, his role was to point forward to Jesus. And the second section we meet, not Jesus' forerunner, but his followers. And we see very simply our role, if we follow Jesus, is to introduce others to him. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. John's done his job. He points people to Jesus and they follow him. That's what John wants to happen. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John said and who would followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, means the rock. Now, John now names some of the first followers. Symbolically, we've moved from the era of the Old Testament prophets who prepared the way for the coming of Jesus, who prepared God's people, who told them what would happen. We've moved away from the prophets, the last one being John the signpost, John the Baptist. And now we've moved to the era of the apostles. That's who we'll look at now, the ones who are being named, those who will be the authorised eyewitnesses who will take the message of what Jesus said and did in his death and resurrection out to the ends of the world and write it down so that it can travel down through the generations to you and to me. And at this point, though, uh, Jesus hasn't yet appointed them as his, as his apostles. They're just ordinary followers at this point. And look what they do. Look at what Andrew does. He meets Jesus and immediately he brings someone else to meet Jesus too. Same thing happens with Philip and Nathanael. Philip meets Jesus and brings Nathanael to meet him, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. I love this. It's basically small town snobbery. Uh, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is nowhereville. But then so is Bethsaida, in fairness. I mean, I grew up in a very, very unprepossessing suburb of London called Eastcote. The next suburb was called Hatch End, and they had no tube station. <laughs> but, <laughs> I've got to be honest. It wasn't like UNESCO were queuing up to confer World Heritage status on the kebab shops of East Coast. It was no great boast, at least we have a tube station. This is basically the level of nonsense that's going on here. And Philip's answer to Nathaniel is the best response to prejudice. Oh, look, yeah, yeah, whatever. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Which is what Nathaniel does. And this last account is very, very interesting. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open." and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Now, obviously, Jesus is expressing some sort of supernatural knowledge about Nathaniel, which is why he's amazed that Jesus saw him under the fig tree, wherever that was and whatever he was doing. Now, if you've read the other Gospels, this little account might just trouble you a bit, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, It's not until about halfway through that the disciples get who Jesus is. They're basically pretty dumb for the first half of the Gospels. And they do some pretty dumb things in the second half too. But they don't work out who Jesus is until about halfway through when Peter suddenly twigs, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And yet here in John 1, Andrew identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Philip sees him as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. And Nathanael declares breathlessly, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. I mean... How do, you, how do you reconcile those two things? I think the point is, Jesus makes it very, very clear in his response to Nathaniel that they really don't know what they're talking about yet. He says, you'll see greater things than these. You, you really haven't understood things. Breathlessly proclaiming me the king of Israel because I display one bit of supernatural knowledge. See, at the time, Israel was just awash with Messianic expectations. It was basically like England before the World Cup. You wait till you see the same thing happens. Come a couple of weeks' time, uh, when a one-cap wonder for England shins in the ball while looking the wrong way from three yards out, he will be proclaimed, he's the next Pele! He's the next Pele! He's the greatest footballer ever! It's, there's, just, there's something about World Cups. Everybody suddenly loses their mind and they're looking for the next great player, the next Messi, the next Ronaldo, whatever. It was like that in Israel at the time. It was a time of huge upheaval and you know, people only had to do... One amazing thing, and suddenly you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, hey, you will see greater things than that. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Saying, look, your declaration of my being the King, God's Son, it's very, very shallow. You haven't seen anything yet. He's referring actually to an incident way back in Genesis 28. An incident that involves the founding father of Israel, uh, Jacob, who was then renamed Israel. Um, And uh, Jacob has his dream when he's traveling. And as he dreams, heaven is basically opened. And a ladder or a staircase descends to him. The angels going up and down it. So he is able to see into and symbolically, he, he can ascend into heaven. Heaven is laid bare before him. And Jesus says, look, you identify me with God and with God's great promises being fulfilled on the basis of one bit of supernatural knowledge. Let me tell you, by the end of three years with me, it will have been as if heaven has been ripped open and the greatest, deepest secrets of God will be revealed. And the way open to God himself will be laid bare for you to walk up. You ain't seen nothing yet. Actually, that applies for all of us, to be honest. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You haven't seen anything yet. There is so much more to know of God than any of us have glimpsed. And all of it is to be found in Jesus. It's like you can swim around the surface of the sea and say, yep, I've explored this, uh, this area of the sea, square mile. I've had a good swim around. I can tell you everything about it. Yeah, but if you're above the Mariana Trench, there's 11 kilometers to explore down. You can read the Gospels and think, yeah, yeah, I know about Jesus. I've worked out lots of stuff about him. Oh, but there is so much more. There is so, so much more to be found of God. 10,000 years into eternity, we will still be working out how awesomely wonderful God is as we learn more of Jesus. Look, if you're not a Christian here tonight, um, and I know a number will be every week, you're very, very welcome. And I hope that over the coming weeks, you'll come as we work our way through John's gospel. And I hope that you will see that in Jesus are the answers to the big questions of life. Both the questions you are asking, but also some of the questions we should be asking. But can I urge you just at this stage, don't be put off by Christians. Some of us are. Uh, Well, all of us are less than perfect, and some of us are just downright weird. Um, But uh, let me encourage you. The, (laughs) The appeal of Christianity, the gospel message is not, look how wonderful I am, and if you follow Jesus, you can be just like me. Let me tell you, Christianity would not grow if that was the message. The message of Christianity is come and see. Come and see one who does have the answers. Come and see one who can deal with your sin. Come and see one who can give you the power of the Holy Spirit to change you. Come and meet God himself in human flesh. All the richness, the fullness, the mysterious, awesome totality of God revealed for you. Come and meet him. And if you find it hard to believe that, Jesus, Christianity really can have the answer to the greatest longings of your life. I mean, isn't religion outdated? Isn't the Bible discredited? Haven't Christians got a very checkered past? Well, I would respond to you the way Philip responds to Nathaniel. Yeah, look, I get your skepticism. I get it. But come and see for yourself. Come and meet Jesus. And Christians, let me remind you, the message of Christianity has never, ever been, look at me. It has always been, come and see. Come and see Jesus, the Lamb who takes away your sins. Come and see Jesus, the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Come and see Jesus, who reveals God. You know, we're doing a, a thing called uncover in the small groups at at church at the moment. These are John's Gospel that we've been reading. And they've basically got some studies at the end, six studies, uh, so that someone who's not yet sure about Christian things can read it with a Christian friend and just get an idea of, of what Christianity is about. And they're not for use just by staff or professional Christians. They're for everybody because you don't have to be sorted. You don't have to have all the answers you just got to be willing to say to a friend, "Come and see who Jesus is." I was uh, looking at the shelves of the office. I've got a friend who um, who is incredibly intelligent, and he's got a, an incredible background. He He works in apologetics, which is about answering questions, um, especially in terms of the the questions people pose to to discredit Christianity. So before he was a Christian, he'd been a Buddhist. He'd explored a whole heap of different religions. He's got a a PhD in philosophy. He's hugely um, knowledgeable. In fact, he's edited this, which is the New Christian Dictionary of Apologetics. When it comes to answering difficult questions on Christianity, he has literally written the book, and it is a big book. But he was doing training a few years ago for ministry trainees at another church I was at. And they were sort of saying, you know, well, how do we cope with the questions people ask about suffering and science and some of the things that we struggle with? And, and you know, why can't we come? Can you just come and meet our friends? And he said, I don't need to. He said, actually, I don't spend much time answering. I'll answer people's questions. It's important to do that. Show intellectual integrity. He said, but to be honest, I don't want to spend my time answering people's questions and I spend as little as I can doing that. I want to get them to a Bible, to a gospel, to meet Jesus. He says, nobody's ever become a Christian because I've answered all their questions. Never. So people become Christians because I open the Bible with them and show them Jesus. And anybody can do that. Come and see. It's very easy. You know, Cancer of the mouth is a very serious condition. Face, mouth, throat, they're very complicated things. And if you have to have you know, your throat cut out because of cancer, it's incredibly difficult to put it back together. To replace an organ like the tongue by cutting other muscles from the body and reconstructing it so that it can still work and speak, very, very difficult thing to do. It is at the cutting edge of surgery, doing stuff like that, literally. Uh, and if you find yourself facing cancer of the, of the mouth, come and talk to me. I have no medical training. The knives in my kitchen aren't even very sharp. Uh, but come and talk to me if you're facing uh, facial cancer and need a total reconstruction. Because I do happen to know the world-leading surgeon. I just happen to know him. So come and talk to me. Death and eternal judgment from God are very, very serious issues and all of us face them. But if you find yourself facing them, come and talk to me. Now, I can't die for your sins and I can't give you eternal life. And I'm not God. I can't reveal the mysteries of God to you. But I do know who can and I would love to introduce you to him. That's all it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to be one who's met him who's found forgiveness and new life and who encourages others to come and see. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, thank you that we don't have to have all the answers for the Lord Jesus does. And we pray that you would help us to have courage, if we're Christians, to offer our friends, our family, our colleagues, our coursemates, the opportunity to meet the Lord Jesus, to come and see the man who has died and lives and will never die again. Amen.